I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. And welcome to a brand new year. It is 2021. Thank bejesus. <laughs> the the bejesus, not the a-jesus. Not the a-jesus, the bejesus. The bejesus, okay. <laughs> for when you don't want to bother a-jesus. Exactly! That's what bejesus is here Yes, for. it's the... You know, he he has more time on his hands. Mm-hmm. Also, his birthday is New Year's. There you go. It, it's a week later. Yeah. But we made it. We made it through 2020. Yes. Not to be flippant about all those that didn't, especially this year, oh, being I, what it was. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> but it, it's always good to, to keep in mind that for all the, the celebrating of getting through a year, one in 1,000 Americans did not through a, a pandemic that is far, far worse than it had any need to be. Just look at any number of nations that, that fared much better facing the same disease. And it's not over, so stay home. That's Wear your freaking mask. Get vaccinated. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Well, little public service announcement here. <laughs> uh, but our tradition on the new year... Yes. ...is to take a look at some centennial or, or multi-centennial observances... That, uh, that went uncelebrated through the year before. It is time to take a look back at 2020 by celebrating uh, something that happened in 1120. Wow, you went back. I think this is farther back than the show has ever done before. I'm speaking about the sinking of the white ship 900 years ago. Now see, when you told me you were doing a, sh a ship sinking, I got very yes. upset and very like territorial <laughs> but then you told me the year and i was like oh that's fine See, i wouldn't yeah, have done that i i figured if we're going to go that far back it would be good to have something familiar still to latch on to yeah yeah people drowning yay <laughs> yeah so on november 25th of 1120 uh, the white ship sunk in the english channel killing around 300 people including King Henry I's only heir. Oh. That, that's why it's historically significant. Okay, yeah. Uh, Henry was the youngest son of William the Conqueror. He, he took the throne of England when his older brother, who had inherited it, died in a hunting accident. And when I say died in a hunting accident, he was shot uh, through the chest with an arrow by one of his barons that he was out hunting with. Oops. Uh, he was it an oops or was it a planned oops? The jury's still out. These sort of oopses happened, like legitimate oopses, all the time, apparently. <laughs> Although you can never be sure it wasn't a planned oops. Oops. <laughs> Henry also was Duke of Normandy after he fought a series of battles against his oldest brother for that title and, and that uh, uh, slice of power. Henry had at least two dozen kids. Two of them were legitimate. Uh, William Adelin, who our story is going to revolve around, and his sister Matilda. Uh, three of Henry's illegitimate daughters were also named Matilda. His wife was named Matilda. That doesn't get confusing at all. <laughs> now, as far as Henry I goes, uh, he seemed really nothing special as far as kings go, uh, but he held power stably in an unstable time. Most of his reign was spent securing the line of succession, 
keep in mind we're talking about 40 years or so before uh, the line in winter is set. Ah, I love the line in I winter. I know. <laughs> I love it so much. If you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. So th- th- that's the sort of uh, zeitgeist we're in. That's where people's headspace is at. We're all barbarians. Getting the line of succession secure is the most important thing you can do in your life. Yeah. Part of that is that in 1120, William Adelin became himself Duke of Normandy. That followed a whole lot of work by his dad. Part of the groundwork for that was his betrothal to uh, Matilda of Anjou. How is he related? (laughs) Or is this a different Matilda? This is a different... This is not one of his half-sisters. Is it his mother? (laughs) No. Or the wife? He is not engaged to marry his mother either, no. (laughs) There are a lot of Matildas. Was he naming everyone Matilda because he's like, man, I really like this name, but, like, people don't live past the age of four. So, like... (laughs) Gotta, like, up my chances of having a, a grown Matilda. Every Matilda I'm going to mention was old enough to to have a noble title. Like, they, they all reached ma- the age of majority. Some of them had, like, noble titles from birth. <laughs> like, that's a thing for people. Not his illegitimate ones. He had, okay. to, wor- he had yeah. to work to give them titles. Okay, that, that okay. Took effort. that's right. So this Matilda that, that is going to marry William one day uh, was of Anjou, uh, which is uh, Normandy's big rival in, in uh, deeper into what is now France. Uh, that, that engagement uh, was declared when he was age 10. Yeah, like you do. Like you do. Like you do in 1120-ish, <laughs> whenever he was 10. He was 17 in 1120, so do the math. He was 10 in, like, 1113. Okay. Uh, So, that fall, uh, William is a duke now. Congratulations. Round of applause. He and a group of around 300 friends set off from the port of Barfleur, north across the Channel, to England in the White Ship. That's a lot of friends. He was a very popular guy. That's so many friends. Like... This is this is a time before social media too, where you just like friended people to friend. Like th- they all weren't real friends; it's, they were friends because he was a duke. It's good to be the king. Well, it's good to be the next king. How uh, many of those were your true friends? How many would save you from drowning after a shipwreck? I'm guessing not many. A friend will get on your party boat. A true friend will sail away. So the white ship, this very creatively named boat. Was it white? Uh, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> I guess this was a time before we invented good boat names. <laughs> but, but this was, uh, uh, by reputation, the fastest, most modern vessel that England had yet built. Oh. Uh, of course, as an island nation, it would grow on to be a naval superpower. And, and the white ship uh, in this age was the the biggest baddest i mean it better be big it was a party yacht for 300 um, ship that that was to ever sail the channel so henry and william they're riding high they, they had just won a, a big land battle with the king of france which ended with uh, uh the king officially recognizing william as duke of normandy high fives all around uh, the sea was still ship was top of the line so it made sense to the 17-year-old duke and his hundreds of pals to uh, drink all evening before they set sail. Well, yeah. This was a mistake. Oh, no. King Henry was also on this journey, of course, but he sailed on ahead on a different ship with part of his entourage. 
Well, he had his own like 300 people. <laughs> Couldn't all fit. So, so all these nobles on the white ship convinced the captain to try and overtake the king. Is that a good idea? I don't know if you want to be like, hey, we're overtaking the king. Like, that seems like a great way to get an oops shot. Well, it didn't have to be that good an idea because the ship's captain had also been uh, drinking all oh, night okay. uh, with the passengers. Well, yeah. Now, all, all of that drinking on shore before departure convinced some people to stay behind and take a third ship. Uh, for instance, Henry's nephew, Stephen of Blois. Uh, now, the, the official chronicle uh, says that Stephen left the vessel upon observing that it was overcrowded with riotous and headstrong youths. Oh, those youths! It also says the excuse he gave to uh, uh, the crown prince and, and now duke uh, was that he had sudden diarrhea and did not wish to, to be on the boat just yet. You know, it's really gotta suck to go down in history with that, <laughs> mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. in all the documents. I didn't mean for you to, like, write that down. Some people blame the disaster on the fact that monks had attempted to bless the ship with holy water, as is the custom, but the nobles mocked and jeered and, and chased them all away, uh, but before they could. They, the monks cursed them instead and was like, ha, ah, you don't want our holy water. You're now gonna die. There's not much difference between a lack of blessing and a curse uh, when you already have so many things stacked against you. So half a mile out of port, the ship is making, the, the ship is barreling across the channel as fast as it can to, to catch up to dear old dad and go neener neener, we're on the white ship, na 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 na. Uh, and they run right up onto a rock. Oh no. And they sank very, very quickly. They Titanic'd it. I mean, Titanic sank pretty slowly until it snapped in half. Well, I'm just saying, like, they're, they're going like, for the speed run down to the bottom of the sea. Well, what did Tan Titanic do? They're like, we're going to go really fast. And the ship's like, we're going to go really fast. And then, <laughs> oh, no, look, rock, iceberg, does it really matter? You know, I don't think it does. <laughs> like... So there was one small boat, one, one little dinghy. And so, of course, they all threw William into it. Uh, uh, and, and It's very much Titanic, not enough boats. <laughs> William and, and a couple of rowers to get him to safety. Uh, as passengers and crew just screamed in fear, William ordered the, the little skiff to return to the white ship to rescue his half-sister, Matilda, Countess of Persh. <laughs> Matildas. <laughs> Whether any of them were waltzing, we do not know. Uh, so Maybe, because there was some vile, there was a band playing as the ship was going down, a very nice waltz <laughs> on a, a violin and a cello. Uh, as the, the skiff approached to save Matilda, a whole lot of people that aren't Matilda, well, I would say about half of them were, because it seemed <laughs> to be the only name available to women. See, no, it wasn't really that they, I'm assuming they're going to overtake the boat, basically. Oh, yeah, they all just body slammed this boat. So, so here's the thing. It wasn't that they were all, like, trying to get away, like, and take it over. It's that they were like, Matilda, we're coming to get you. And they're like, okay. And they're all named Matilda. So they didn't know who they were talking to. They just thought they meant, oh, you're saving me. But, like, there's 75 Matildas. Forty women wearing quilts wrapped around wooden frames and calling that a dress uh, just destroyed this boat, <laughs> breaking it to pieces, and it went down as well. 
According to the contemporary chronicler who, who recorded this history, there was one survivor who lived to tell the tale. Was it a Matilda? His, he was a butcher, an unnamed butcher from Ruin. He wasn't unnamed. His name was Matilda. <laughs> uh, he was so embarrassed uh, that, that he never uh, uh, mentioned it. Ruin, of course, being the capital of Normandy. The butcher was probably there to collect on some IOUs from uh, the, the nobles in the retinue. <laughs> Wait, so he was there to like be like, you have to pay me? Yes. That's why I'm on the ship right now? It's yes. like, you can't escape, so you have to pay your bill. Yeah. That's smart. He was he kept his receipts and he was following all the, these uh, nobles and their staves back to England where, you know, their cash was. That's really smart. <laughs> Corner them. It's dedicated on a ship. is what it is. Smart. So when the ship's captain learned from this butcher that William had also drowned, he chose to go down himself, uh, letting go of the wreckage that he was floating upon. Titanic right there. You're supposed to never let go. It's very explicit. You could have fit on the door. So of the Or was it like a roll top desk? <laughs> was it a roll top desk? It was not a roll top desk. I don't think that was invented yet. The cow going by? Their beds were made of rocks. I, I <laughs> they're barbarians. Of the dead, around 150 were nobles and wealthy clergy. Uh, the rest were the servants and oarsmen. A whole class, basically, of eager young nobles. The future of the aristocracy went down with this ship. At least the, the English the English and North France uh, uh, aristocracy. All the people who saw being close to the future king as their ticket to, to some uh, wealthy bit of patronage, uh, uh, something like that, all went down. In order to break the news to King Henry I, a child was paid to cry in the streets so that the king would come up and ask what happened, and then the child would say, I heard your son drowned along with 300 other people. Because <laughs> nobody wanted to be d responsible for delivering the news. They, they thought he couldn't be mad at a crying kid. <laughs> was he mad at the crying kid? Not that we know, so I guess it works. <laughs> okay. It's a very bizarre plan. So all that work in securing, you know, the future of England now lost, Henry had to take a second wife and get to work producing a new heir. What's her name, Matilda? I don't recall, like probably, but it did not work. Oh. Instead, he worked to make his legitimate daughter, Matilda. <laughs> as you'll recall, the daughter of his wife, Matilda, his heir. A queen had never ruled England before. Matilda would be the first. However, between that fact and, and her previous marriage to an enemy of the Normans, uh, uh, she was very, very unpopular with the English barons. Uh, as soon as Henry died, all these barons that had sworn to him on three separate occasions, years apart, that they would support Matilda's claim went right back on their word. And this period of English history is known as the anarchy. Oh, I it, love the anarchy. It was not actual anarchy. It was Damn more it. of a civil war. Dang. Uh, not a leaderless society. In fact, there were too many. There were, there were leaders in competition with one another. Uh, so Stephen of Blois, Matilda's cousin, who missed the boat because of his poopy butt, if you'll recall. <laughs> 
He sailed to England upon uh, Henry's death and assumed the throne. Stephen was well-liked. The people of London thought he'd give the city greater privileges, so he was welcomed in with, with like, cheers and, and, you know... Very Aladdin-y. Ticker tape parade, but I guess they were throwing garbage because it's all they had to throw. Garbage in a good way. Garbage confetti. Oh, yeah. The good stuff. Uh, It helped that Stephen's brother was Bishop of... Was Bishop of Canterbury, the richest man in England beside the king. Oh. And and with that support came the support of the full church. Uh, I was going to say the Church of England, but like the Catholic Church in England. Yeah. It's it's different. That's a different yeah. king. Much if, much later. Much yeah. later. Now Stephen was also the first person with any sort of claim to arrive in England ahead of his cousins and older brothers. Th- this was the same. This was the same strategy that Henry the First had used in the first place when he took over for his uh, uh, arrow-filled brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just first on the scene, and that really helped him out. By the way, for people taking notes, uh, Stephen of Blois, his wife was named Matilda. Oh my God. Did they not know any other female names? Who needs them? We got Matilda. Everybody loves Matilda. Which Matilda? Who cares? We love them all. Like, how did anyone keep anything straight in history? Like, how do you know? Like, okay, so Matilda and the other Matilda and Matilda. Like, which Matilda are we talking about right now? That's why these titles are so important. Because now we have nearly 20 years of warfare between King Stephen and Empress Matilda. Again, the legitimate daughter of King Henry, Empress Matilda, going to war against her cousin, Poopy Butt Steve. (laughs) It's the best title. (laughs) I hope that was on a plaque. This is warfare in the 1100s, right? We, we got castle sieges, mercenary armies, all that good stuff. It's one of the first widespread uses of counter castles. So if you're going to siege a castle, you build a second castle just out of, like, arrow range. Yeah. To support your siege of that castle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You'd be like, hey, your arrows are falling like two feet from us. We're just going to keep building our castle here. Mm-hmm. And from that castle, you are not being blockaded by a siege. So so you can keep feeding your soldiers to starve their soldiers. The, the anarchy nearly ended in 1141 when Stephen was captured in battle. So then Matilda made made her way to become crowned queen. She she accepted the title of Lady of England outside London, but to become queen, you have to go into London. When she did, the people rioted rather than let her be crowned queen. Now they're throwing garbage in a bad way because they don't like her, not because they have nothing to throw but garbage. <laughs> How do you tell the difference? It's all in the shouting, I think. The shouting? It's a vibe? It's It's a vibe. vibe. It's the vibe of it. Uh, So so this war just devastated the lands that it passed over again and again as battle lines went back and forth. And many rebel barons made their own plays for power during the destabilization. They they don't have to listen to either of these people. They're going to do their own thing while uh, uh, Stephen and Matilda work it out out between themselves. The anarchy ended for good in 1153 when Empress Matilda's son, Henry, invaded England with his own force. Matilda's claim was defeated by her own large adult son. (laughs) After Henry conquered the west of England, the church stepped in to broker a truce. The war would end, Stephen would remain king, 
but he would recognize Henry as his own large adult son, uh, his adopted son and heir. Aha. Uh-huh. Stephen happened to die the following year. There you go. And Henry ruled from then on as King Henry II, who you will recall was played by Peter O'Toole in The Lion in Winter. Yes. And it's the best. It's the best. <laughs> see, see that? You, you set something up and then you deliver at the end. Yeah. Yeah. If a drunken party boat didn't crash on the rocks, <laughs> the Plantagenet kings following Henry II might not have been under the same pressures in the same uh, chaotic context, which means Magna Carta may not have been signed in 1215, which means the path of democracy in England and the lands it colonized may have been wildly different if a few sailors hadn't been given the royal heir's mead. It's all about a drunken party boat. It's all about a party boat. And a lot of Matildas. (laughs) So many Matildas. So with that, we're going to take a break and then be back with a different story entirely. But of course, you seasoned listeners know that uh, there's never just one story in a New Year's special. Oh, no, no, no. Something else must have happened in the past. Yes. <laughs> and uh, for my look back, we are going uh, to learn about the, t- the tomato trial of 1820. Oh, goodness. Yes. The story goes, in 1820, Robert Gibbon Johnson brought tomatoes to the U.S. for the first time, and people, you know, thought they were poisonous, so they weren't eating them. (laughs) So he announced that he would prove that they weren't poisonous on the courthouse steps at noon by eating them. Okay, okay. Uh, So the day of, about 2,000 people came to the town square, because what entertainment do you have in 1820 but to maybe watch someone die? We did have, like... Plays and music, though, right? Like, 1820 is not that long ago. But, like, those have set times, and, you know, it's... it's (laughs) So did this! Yeah, if someone's like, hey, I'm gonna, like, eat some tomatoes and maybe die, you're gonna be like, great, my tickets to the theater aren't till seven. I got time for this. And grief counseling in between. Yes! The day of... The crowd waits for him to appear, and, mm-hmm. and he, he walks from his house uh, to the courthouse steps, carrying a basket of tomatoes. Sure. Uh, and this, this was a courthouse in Salem, New Jersey. The lesser Salem. Yes. Second Salem. Yes. The crowd sees him, they cheer, apparently there's a band that starts up a lively tune, etc. We all could have just seen the band. <laughs> I don't need to see someone overdose on vitamin C <laughs> just to enjoy the fireman's band. So uh, he, he gets there uh, with his tomatoes and he holds one up and says to help dispel the tall tales, the fantastic fables that you have been hearing and to prove to you that it is not poisonous. I'm going to eat one right now. <laughs> and the story goes that the crowd fell completely silent as he bit into a tomato until some woman screamed and then fainted. <laughs> but none of them cared about her. They just kept watching him because he's eating tomatoes. 
Though they have proof that tomatoes cause psychic damage. <laughs> Look what he did to that poor woman with his brain beams. And then someone yelled out from the crowd, he's done it. He's still alive. <laughs> and he was because he didn't die from eating tomatoes. The lengths a guy will go to just to get a decent marinara sauce in this town. Uh, and that that is the event that happened. The trial was someone walking up to some steps and being mm-hmm. like, hey, go eat some tomatoes and I'm not going to die. <laughs> and people are like, oh, what? So let's look look at this this tale a bit closer sure sure uh first let's uh learn a little bit about who uh colonel robert gibbon johnson was an actual gibbon he was a monkey man (laughs) he was a monkey man uh he was a prominent member of uh the community of salem new jersey Mm -hmm. uh he his family had a large plantation that he inherited and he established the first Presbyterian church there. Um, at one point he was a member of the New Jersey legislator and served on the county court as a county court judge. Okay. So did he read the tomato its rights? Maybe. Okay. Uh, he was also a historian uh, and wrote an historical account of the first settlement of Salem in West Jersey. Which was not the first settlement of Salem. Thank you very much. Nope. There are pre-existing Salems. Uh, And he maintained quite a large uh, collection of historical documents. He helped establish a public library. He helped uh, found the New Jersey Historical Society. Like, big resume. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, you know, many prominent people of the time, he was also a slave owner. So like, pretty (laughs) awful. Things we wouldn't have without slave owners. The BLT. Who can say it's all bad? So, a side story Mm -hmm. about uh, one of his slaves. In 1826, uh, Amy Hester Reckless, who went by Hetty, uh, actually fled from the Johnson family to Philadelphia with her daughter. Uh, She was born into slavery and was owned by Johnson's mother and became owned by him once his mother passed away. And Johnson's mother apparently had promised her her freedom, which Mm -hmm. she never got. Mm. And then when Johnson's second wife became extremely abusive towards her, she ran. I wish that tomato did kill him. She she went to Philly and uh, she sought help from the Abolition Society. And Johnson, like, tried to get her... To, like, be sent back. Mm-hmm. Or, like, if not you, at least your child who I own. Like, very awful person. This is before the Fugitive Slave Act, at least. Yes. But she she did not go back. And uh, instead, she became very involved in Philadelphia. Uh, she mm. became a founding member of the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And worked with the Female Vigilant Association. And operated a safe house. Um of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia. Hey. And then later, after, like far after the tomato trials, um, <laughs> in 1845, she actually co-founded uh, what was called the Moral Reform Retreat, which was a shelter f- focused on uh, sheltering women from sexual exploitation. So, mm-hmm. or what they called victims of vice. Ah. Um, and it was the only shelter for black women in Philadelphia. Um, and in their first two years of operation, they provided shelter and education to over 200 women, which is 
cool. <laughs> you know, like it is. It is indeed cool. Uh, so she she wouldn't return to Salem until after Johnson died, mm-hmm. and then she went back and continued her anti-slavery work. Right. Why risk it until he's dead? Exactly. <laughs> Um, so I just thought that was an interesting, like, side yeah. story. Um, but Good back back to Johnson, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so he was also an active uh, horticulturalist and president of the New, Jer- New Jersey Horticulturalist Society. And uh, he wrote about, like, draining marshlands and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. he's very prominent in that. Um, and again, as mentioned, he was credited with bringing the tomato to the U.S. around 1820. (laughs) Mm -hmm, And it, you know, would become a significant crop in southern New Jersey um, as they were able to easily ship it to more urban areas like New York City and Philadelphia. They were in a good spot for that. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, the Jersey Devil loves a good margarita pizza. Which wouldn't be introduced for many years later. (laughs) Let's pause and and talk about the history of the tomato. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, So the exact date that tomatoes started to be cultivated, we don't know. But by about 500 BC, they were in southern Mexico Mm -hmm. um, and other areas around Mexico, too. The Spanish, because of their history, uh, (laughs) you know. You know what we're talking about. (laughs) These guys over here. Am I right? The Spanish? (laughs) Come on. Uh, they would have brought tomatoes to Europe around the 1500s, along with the Caribbean and the Philippines, and then it would spread to Asia, you know, tomatoes all around the globe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be until about 15, the 1590s that tomatoes would be grown in England. They weren't really popular there for a few reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one being this guy, John Garrard, who was an English botanist and author of a really large book. It was like 1,484 pages. But he's counting. All about plants. Uh, And he said that, you know, tomatoes were poisonous. And -hmm. since it was Mm -hmm. the most prevalent botany book in England in the 17th century, that idea spread pretty well because you don't have a lot of other things to read. (laughs) Um, It's the authoritative source. We, you know, we were also dealing with, uh, this is the time where wealthy people had, like, pewter plates and lead, you know, lead poisoning from eating certain things. And people are like, oh, tomatoes. Mm-hmm, that whole mm-hmm. story we all know. Because the tomatoes would, like, leach the lead out of the plate with their acidity. Yes. And people are like, oh, it's got to be the tomato. Mm-hmm. Not actually thinking about the fact, well, no, it's what you're eating off of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so by the time it made its way to North America again, and I say again because tomatoes were probably already in North America because they were in the Caribbean and they probably came up like through Southern U.S. Like, mm-hmm. but again, uh, <laughs> it was, you know, classified as a deadly nightshade and people were like, mm, not too eager to eat that. It is a pretty close relative. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't know. The difference, really, that it's <laughs> not going to kill them. There's the kind that makes big red fruits and the kind that doesn't. There's no other difference between these plants. <laughs> They're identical. Was Johnson the first to introduce tomatoes to the U.S.? No, <laughs> he wasn't. They were not widespread or common parts of people's diets 
Um, in a lot of ways, they were often grown for, like, ornamental reasons instead. Ooh. Like, ooh, it makes pretty red things. Ooh. Um, but colonial cookbooks and letters and gardening manuals of the time, like, did talk about them. They were there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that said, again, people probably weren't very into eating them. And there were <laughs> definitely pockets of populations that probably still had a lot of fear. So then the question comes of, okay, so if... He didn't bring tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Did he actually do this thing? <laughs> There's a lot of, like, info about this dude. As a historian himself, I'm sure he made sure of that. Yeah. But the the story of the tomato trial didn't really ever appear anywhere until the early 20th century. Mm, nearly 100 years later, you say. Yeah. So in uh, 1908, uh, this dude, uh, William Chu, a newspaper editor, wrote a book on Salem County, and it said that Johnson brought the first tomatoes to Salem County. Plausible. Very plausible. And then at the time, they were considered unfit for eating by the general public. And that's about all he said. Mm-hmm. That's like the first time this story appears. And then it wouldn't be until about 1940 that the courthouse step part of the story up here. <laughs> and this was in Harry Emerson Wilde's book, The Delaware. And he wrote, not however until 1820, when he dared to eat a prized tomato publicly on the courthouse steps, would cautious Southern Jersey accept as edible the vegetable that is now the largest crop. And he apparently heard this story from this dude, Joseph Sickler, a Salem postmaster. Who was there because he was 140 years old. <laughs> so then about six years later, uh, Stuart Holbrook, Holbrook uh, would expand upon it more in his book, <laughs> Lost Men of American History. And that's the first time like dialogue was added to the story, from mm-hmm. what we can tell. Mm-hmm. And then in 1949, it was expanded upon even more by Stickler, that Salem postmaster. Uh, He said that not only was Johnson the first person in the county to eat a tomato, uh, but the first person in the U.S. Ah, that's, uh, you know, just adding an R into county doesn't seem like much, but suddenly it's the whole country. And that actually is a big change. Yes. Um, And so Stickler would be hired as a historical consultant for an episode of the CBS radio drama, You Are There, which was a reenacted historical event series. Uh-huh. So it's like America's Most Wanted, but not for crimes. But for history. Ah. Uh, and from there, the story seems to uh, have been just retold and retold and retold and became legend. You know the best reenactment show? Hmm. Sex Sent Me to the, to the ER? <laughs> Those so reenactments much. are so good. Oh my god. They're so good. <laughs> the Tomato Trial of 1820... Probably wasn't real. You don't say. But there is a different tomato trial that we know for sure was real. Uh Uh-huh. So in 1883, President Arthur signed uh, signed the Tariff Act of March 3rd, 1883, which required a tax to be paid on vegetables but not fruit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this led to the Supreme Court case of Nix versus Hedden. Uh, over if tomatoes were a fruit or a vegetable. (laughs) 
Uh, so John Nix founded the John Nix and Co. Fruit Commission. So, like, as soon as slavery was over, the Supreme Court was so bored. <laughs> they would take anything. <laughs> he founded this fruit commission in New York City in 1839, and they became one of the largest sellers of produce in New York City at the time, and one of the first to ship produce from Virginia and Florida and the Bahamas to New York City. After Arthur signed this act, Nix filed suit against Edward L. Hedden, uh, the collector of the Port of New York. To He wanted to recover past duties paid under protest. Uh-huh. Uh, and this suit argued that botanically a tomato is a fruit. Yes. And should not have to pay duties on it. Okay. It's not a vegetable. Yeah. It's a fruit. It yeah. should be exempt. Uh, so this case, um, they had evidence that came from definitions in various dictionaries <laughs> of <laughs> fruits and vegetables in the tomato. Um, it, they also had two witnesses who were witnesses simply because they were in the business of selling produce for a few decades. That sounds like expertise to me. Uh, and it was on May 10th, 1893, that the Supreme Court declared that the tomato was a vegetable based on the popular definition that classified vegetables by use. And this decision applied only to the interpretation of the Act of 1883. And it did not reclassify the tomato in any other way. <laughs> it's, it's good when the court shows restraint. Can you imagine the chaos that would reign over America? <laughs> If they redefine a tomato as a fruit in every possible context? Well, and I, I guess this is where we get the, the modern confusion on what a tomato is. And Cats and dogs laying down together. To, to clarify for people out there, a sure. tomato is a fruit. Yes. That botanically is classified as a berry. Yes. But culinary is used as a vegetable. What I like is that in 2005... Supporters in the New Jersey legislature cited this case as a basis for a bill designating the tomato as the official state vegetable. <laughs> and that is the real tomato trial, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not this tomato trial of 1820 that we all think of. Because I know you all think, think of it. You all, all knew time, about all it. All of you knew about it. Now, when was bruschetta first introduced into the United States? <laughs> Because I feel like that's when tomatoes really took off. Yeah. 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 Darling, what did you learn? I learned we should have named our dog Matilda because there's no <laughs> other name for, there, there's no other female name in the English language. Nope. No. 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 Elena is definitely not. Oh, you're, you're one of them foreigners. They probably eat tomatoes where you're from. That's poison around these parts. My mom would disown me. She cut <laughs> over my lack of tomato eating. I like them cooked and things. Raw tomatoes are really gross. In in like a 20th century, 21st century context, I don't think there's a more American food than ketchup. And, yeah. And to think that there was a, a violent, uh, uh, like stalwart resistance to the idea that tomatoes are even edible, is it's tickling. It is a fun story. Well, there, there, there is always the, the tale of tomatoes or of ketchup being a vegetable. When clearly, it's fruit juice. It's fruit juice. Yeah. You just drink it. Put a straw in it and slurp it up. <laughs> but only Heinz. You can't use any other variety. So that, we're going to take another break and be back with letters. Letters. <laughs> 
again, everybody. We are back with our final uh, segment of our first episode of the year 2021. And that is letters. Letters time. Our first letter this week comes in from Isaac, uh, who is answering our annual traditional New Year's prompt of of something that, that you enjoyed about uh, the year behind us. Isaac's favorite thing that happened in 2020 was uh, something that they mentioned in a previous letter, but it's still the number one thing. Uh, They moved in with their partner and also got a job with health benefits. So uh, that's a pretty good number two. (laughs) Uh, Peter writes in, uh, and personally, 2020 was a good year for them. Uh, They got a permanent position and a residence permit, which is the first steps to hopefully getting residency in the country they now reside. So that is very exciting. Very exciting, Peter. Thanks for writing in. And our final letter today uh, is from Anthony, first-time writer, though they've been listening to us for years, apparently. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Anthony. Anthony bought a home, congratulations, and adopted a a cat from a shelter, Paige, uh, in order to help fill it. She's a very cute kitty. What a lovely cat Paige is, and thank you so much for for writing and and sharing these highlights with us and and everybody. Uh, Thank you to everybody for writing in. Uh, Darlin, where can those letters go if people want to talk to us? They can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, before we move on, I want to ask you, what's something that you really enjoyed about 2020? I really liked when we went to Disney before the world fell apart. (laughs) That was cool. Right on the cusp, baby. February. I also like that we moved and we now have (laughs) space. Mm -hmm. We have full walls (laughs) in our apartment. Like, not not four walls, full. They go to the ceiling. It's cool. Couldn't say that at the old place. Yeah. I think I liked getting to spend a lot of time with you and my dog. Aww. That was, you were good people to be stuck with. <laughs> Look, Looking back over the year and my personal life, you know, not uh, necessarily to connect it to uh, the broader events of the world. Maybe we should, but that's kind of out of the remit of the, the question at hand. <laughs> but yeah, basically did three big things this year. A trip that we made a lot of lovely memories on together that we've talked about quite a bit on this show. Yes. Uh, Yes, moving into this current new home and and building it into a home with you. I feel like we've done more. We've put more into this place in a few months than we did at the old place (laughs) over a number of years. We couldn't move around the old place. It was far (laughs) too small. But the the third uh, is the release of Last Shooting, my first, like, design credit uh, on a game I made myself and the incredible uh, feedback that I've gotten from that everybody who plays a game and then tells me about it just makes my day lifts my soul Uh, the the few like ratings and reviews I've seen places it's got a little bit of like coverage on some other people's uh, uh, tabletop podcasts it's just oh so such a, a great gratifying experience that I had a, a lot of fun doing and hey maybe I'll have a second idea someday well for going that route I should say like the fact I gotta be involved in something at work yeah when I started there a few years ago I was like I want to be involved in this thing mm-hmm. and now I'm in charge of and it. now it is your thing uh, uh, as- that's cool too it's very vague for everyone out there but that's what you're getting (laughs) but yeah that that's big Mm -hmm. 
Congratulations, Dan. Congratulations to you. (laughs) Wokey, what was your favorite thing of 2020? Oh, us being home all the time? Or is it us moving to a neighborhood with more squirrels and bunnies? No, it's the fact that I don't leave. (laughs) I I don't leave home. I'm here always. And she can be glued to me at all times. The bunnies are nice, though. She does like the bunnies and the squirrels. But... I think she likes me more. <laughs> but if you would like to uh, give us an email like these these fine folks uh, we, we just talked to and about, a little bit of both, uh, we would love to hear your, your uh, stories, uh, answer any questions. We welcome your corrections and also responses to our regular prompts. Hey, darling, is there anything you want to know for next episode? Uh, I would like to know, what is your favorite safety regulation? <laughs> Huh. Huh. Okay. I, what an episode we're about to have. <laughs> so again, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, while you're at it, you can also uh, follow us on social media. Yeah. At History Honeys. Mm-hmm. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're apparently on Facebook. Is anyone still on Facebook? Come on. <laughs> But uh, I'm going to have an announcement of a new show on, on those that I will be sure to share on those venues soon. Hey, hey, hey. So you, you better be there or you're going to miss it. You're going to be days behind everybody else. My goodness. You can also provide us some feedback that is shared with the world in the forms of ratings and reviews on, on Apple Podcasts or, or anywhere else that allows you to do so. We do appreciate every single one. Not iTunes. That apparently doesn't exist anymore for podcasts. No, Found no. that out mm-hmm. last time we recorded. Uh-huh. Uh, but you can also tell a friend. Friends still exist and probably need something to do while they stay home, Fr- like good friends do. Friends exist now more than ever. Uh, so definitely tell them. Word of mouth does a lot. It helps people find us. Spreads the joy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of safety procedures. <laughs> Of King Stephen Poopybutt. <laughs> and with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.